I'm Mark Lynch. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. We're joined today with our featured book by Glenn Robinson of the Naval Postgraduate School. His book is Global Jihad, A Brief History, just published by Stanford University Press. We're also joined by Dina Bashara of Cornell University. She'll be talking about her article, Precarious Collective Action, Unemployed Graduate Associations in the Middle East and North Africa. And finally, we'll be joined by Sarah Parkinson of Johns Hopkins University, and she'll be talking about her new World Politics article, Practical Ideology in Militant Organizations. Thanks for joining us. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Dina Bashara of Cornell University. Uh, she's the author of a new article in Comparative Politics called Precarious Collective Action, Unemployed Graduates Associations in the Middle East and North Africa, available online now, and it's scheduled to be published in the April 2021 issue. Adina, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about the article and the research that it's based upon. Great, yeah. Um, the article um, is based on um, or motivated by a fascination with um, organization around unemployment, um, especially unemployment around um, edu uh, university graduates. Um, and the puzzle, the main puzzle is what motivates um, the, uh, the formation of associations of the unemployed um, in North Africa and what explains the variation across North Africa, especially uh, between Egypt, Morocco, um, and Tunisia. So we see the emergence of um, associations of the unemployed in Morocco and Tunisia, but not in Egypt. And it's based on research in um, all three countries um, with activists and civil society um, organizers um, and um, so, so in terms of the puzzle, then, um, you know, why would you expect or not expect to see unemployed associations like this? Well, so um, organization um, around unemployment is quite rare, um, but we have seen it happen around um, around the world. But most of the times, the explanations that we get are are, are um, explanations rooted in grievances or the availability of political opportunities. Um, and when I was looking around um, the Middle East and North Africa, I, I noticed that um, unemployed uh, associations had emerged in Tunisia and Morocco, but I noticed that they didn't emerge in Egypt. One would expect that, but when I looked at these three countries, um, they all had similar um, conditions when it comes to whether or not we would expect um, unemployed associations to emerge. So all three countries had high levels of grievances around educated unemployment, um, and all three countries had a history of state provision of, un, of employment to university graduates um, in their past. Um, and all three countries are, were characterized by uh, restrictive political conditions um, and some relative political openings that have allowed um, protest movements to emerge um, across all three countries. So I was puzzled to see um, that we saw the emergence of unemployed associations um, in Tunisia and Morocco, but not in Egypt. So first, could you just describe these associations a little bit, the ones that you see in Morocco and Tunisia? Um, you know, what are they? How are they organized? What do they do? So these are associations, the ones that emerged in Morocco and Tunisia were specifically formed by um, university graduates um, who had graduated from, the from university but did not find jobs. Um, and their main goal is to advocate for the provision of public, public sector jobs for unemployed um, university graduates. And um, they're 
in Morocco, at least, there is a, uh, a point system where uh, these associations um, give points to uh, those people active according to uh, how much they participate in collective action. Um, and so you attend a protest or, or um, you get a point or this, um, uh, and then the more that you participate, then the more that you, are, you gather these points and that's how they determine uh, which of their activists are uh, given jobs when uh, they enter into negotiations with the state. Um, and I, I, I think there is a, something probably similar um, in Tunisia, but the, the goal of these organizations is to lobby the state for the provision of jobs to these graduates um, through collective mobilization, including protests. And so how do they relate then to kind of more standard uh, uh, labor organizations and, um, and kind of workers organizations? So there in, in Tunisia and Morocco, there have been some ties uh, between um, the unions and, and these associations, but these ties have not been formal or necessarily consistent. Um, so what we see is at the beginning of, um, of the emergence of these associations, there might be some support from, um, look, from unions in terms of um, just logistical support, but not much. Um, uh, not much else, and uh, the agendas of these groups doesn't al don't always completely overlap um, because um, you don't actually have um, yeah. So the but you see some relations that's just not very mm -hmm. co consistent. So let's talk about your explanation then. Uh, so why do you see this in uh, in Morocco and Tunisia, but not in Egypt? So I argue that the main um, explanatory factor has to do with the availability of. Um, uh, of ideologically conducive collective action frames um, around um, unemployment and um, around uh, employment as a right um, in Morocco and Tunisia. Um, and I attribute this to the presence of a strong leftist ideology among the founding uh, members of the organizations in Morocco and Tunisia um, that had been active in student unions in the past. And in Egypt, well, uh, we see that there had been um, a number of student unions that were active. Um, what we find is that these unions were um, based in, were strongly dominated by Islamist activism and um, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt did not have um, a, an ideologically conducive frame for the emergence of these organizations given its um, liberal economic orientation. So tell us a little bit more about that. Why wouldn't uh, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood want to advocate for, for employment? Um, it's not necessarily that they did not want to advocate for employment. It's just that their economic orientation did not um, translate into an, um, a collective action frame that saw the state as the target um, of this activism or the solution to the, the problem of, uh, of unemployment. So instead, um, the Muslim Brotherhood approached the problem of um, educated unemployment um, through the provision of services um, to unemployed graduates, um, through recruiting some of these unemployed graduates into their businesses, um, and did not develop or um, there wasn't kind of a congruence between its economic orientation, which was more pro-market, more, more liberal economic orientation. There wasn't a congruence between that um, ideological orientation and uh, blaming um, the state for the problem of, un of unemployment or for seeing the state as um, the target of this activism um, or the development of a frame around the right to work um, 
that similar to what happened in Tunisia and Morocco, where the leftist ideological orientation was key in developing this type of framing. That's really interesting. So let's take a step back then and say, um, let's look, how does this then uh, inform uh, kind of broader research agendas in terms of thinking about this type of organization, uh, whether in the Middle East or, or more broadly? I think um, the main, one of the main takeaways from this article is that uh, we're Traditionally, we've been looking at um, issues like grievances and opportunities or the availability of allies. I think this article points to the importance of um, the role of framing, something that social movement scholars have um, consistently emphasized, but that hasn't been emphasized that much in uh, the literature on the emergence of unemployed um, mobilization or unemployed organization. So I think looking across um, other cases, it will be important to see um, how um, ideological factors um, interact with other more traditional factors that we've looked at, like uh, grievances and opportunities. Um, beyond that, I think um, this article kind of expands um, the scope of the cases that we've traditionally been looking at when looking at the mobilization of the unemployed. Um, so while the mobilization of the unemployed has been quite extensively studied in democratic and Western contexts, especially in Europe, um, and Latin America, there's been less work on, um, on the emergence of unemployed mobilization or organization more broadly in non-democratic um, contexts. So I think this um, article uh, pushes us to draw more, more comparisons across non-democratic contexts to see um, how the emergence of unemployed organizations differs or similar to democratic contexts. That's really interesting. So we've been speaking with Dina Bashara of Cornell University about her new article in uh, the journal Comparative Politics, the April 2021 issue. Uh, Dina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is the POMEPS, Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Sarah Parkinson. Uh, she's the Aronson Assistant Professor of Political Science International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And she's the author of a brand new article, Practical Ideology in Militant Organizations, published in the January 2021 issue of World Politics. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. So tell us about this article. So basically the article starts from the prop, from the premise that there's a great deal of research, uh, particularly in political science, but also in other fields, that ideology has a huge influence on militant recruitment, organization, and conflict behavior, right? It matters if a group is Marxist, is uh, Salafi, whatever. Um, but a lot of these studies make the assumption that doctrine and formal doctrine specifically is doing an awful lot of work. It assumes things like doctrinal consistency, that uh, adherents are being socialized from the top down, and that there are sort of clear links between formal ideology and political action. So if you are a Marxist, you behave in certain ways because of what Marxist ideology tells you to do. Mm -hmm. Now, we have a lot of people, particularly in the realm of Middle East studies, who have been writing about how ideological commitments are much more fraught than they're often portrayed. Mm -hmm. um, and we can think of this as 
the idea that, you know, people might feel a little bit ambiguous about their Marxism or even their connection to democratic ideologies some days, right, or liberal ideologies, that people's commitments are contingent, that they can often be, have internal contradictions, for example, or that they might be ambivalent. So the question that I was interested in exploring in this article is that for people who experience this ambivalence, who might be one day really committed and one day being, you know, not as enthusiastic, what work is ideology actually doing if it's not being sort of fully internalized in the way that a lot of models tend to assume, right? So what happens if we can't actually make the argument that people sincerely believe all of those tenets of a formal doctrine? So what work does it do then? So actually what I was interested in looking at in what they call practical ideologies, which I define as these sets of quotidian principles, ideas, and social heuristics that reflect relational worldviews. And that's sort of how a group sees itself put up against another group rather than a doctrine. So instead of being like, well, I'm a Marxist and they're a Salafi, and that's why we're different, being like, well, we're the people who do this and wear this and eat this, and that's what makes us different. And that this really allows for us in that looking at practical ideology gives us a piece of the puzzle that isn't often accounted for in how we think about militant socialization. And that it also additionally captures the role that sympathizers, affiliates that you know, the brother or the sister who might not be a member of an organization might still play by engaging in things like gossip, right? Or by saying things like, well, they're not real nationalists because they don't cook this inherently, in this case, Palestinian food in the way that we do, right? And that this allows people to draw group boundaries in ways that we don't usually think of as ideological, but that really hit all of the same components of both socialization and behavior that we're interested in looking at if we're concerned with how political outcomes obtain. Well, let's try and see how this, uh, how this works out in the case that you studied. So tell us about the research. So in, in terms of this research, this is work that actually emerged from a broader ethnographic archival project on the evolution of Palestinian militant organizations in Lebanon. So the larger project is actually focused historically on the 1970s and 1980s. But as I was engaging with members of um, various Palestinian groups, I noticed that people weren't really talking a whole lot about ideology in terms of how they separated themselves from other groups, in terms of what made them a member of one group versus another. Um, it was really about these everyday behaviors. In the case of my work, this was really gendered and shaped by the fact that I had been, um, I'd been conducting research again, with members of many groups, but had become particularly close to a number of people in uh, Fatah's women's office. And uh, around Nakba day of 2010, I was actually um, sort of shadowing uh, an official in the organization as she conducted a historical project. 
And as we got closer and as I was sort of becoming incorporated into people's social lives, I noticed that she would tell me things like how to dress or make comments about members of other organizations that didn't seem on the surface to have ideological content, but that were sort of designed to fundamentally shape my judgment about those people, not just on a superficial level of, oh, that person's a bad cook, and we'll get to that part, um, but also that they're a bad person. They're, they're morally defunct in some way. Um, and when I started paying attention to these sorts of dynamics and you know, ethnographically recording everything in field notes and this sort of thing, I started to notice that there were patterns. There were particular themes and practices that um, when taken as a whole and looked at over a long period of time, were systematically contributing to things like boundary making and shaping people's behavior towards each other. So like, how do you see that playing out in practice? You mentioned it being linked to a number of outcomes of interest to uh, scholars of conflict and the like. So patterns of violence and things like that. So how, how does what you're observing play out in those realms? So what's really interesting, I tend to look at things from, um, I, I come from training both ethnographic training and from a social network perspective. And one of the things in social network world that we like to do is scale up from sort of very um, almost minute one-on-one um, -on -one behaviors to larger social processes. Mm -hmm. And in the case of this article, one of the ways in which people were engaging in, in practical ideology um, or one of the practical ideologies sort of centered around food and who was making Palestinian food properly, right? Um, who was using the right grain, who was using spices in particular ways, um, who was, um, you know, using good or bad meat, which all sort of serve to index both people's judgment, but also um, their adherence to ideas about like, well, or not their adherence, but um, how Palestinian they were at the core, right? And these are two groups that were um, diametrically opposed on a number of things. I, I sort of, in the article, describe um, dynamics within two families that initially I was working with both of them and eventually had to cut off um, my relationship with one of them, um, given some of the dynamics that came out of this, out of this research. But that for, um, for members of Fatah with whom I was working, um, they didn't like this other organization, which is sort of known as, as the Abu Nidal organization for sake of simplicity. They certainly didn't believe what the members of that group believed, but for them talking about food, talking about how people dress, talking about people behaved in moral terms, the, the outgrowth was that the claim was these people are not Palestinians, right? And that gets to who has a right to make claims about Palestinian politics? Who mm -hmm. has the right to claim representation? Um, who has the right to speak on behalf of? for example. Um, and and so but it also- What it sort of means then is that a lot of the conflicts that we see might not really be about what we think they're about. Right, so when you talk to people about why they join certain organizations, like maybe, and, and this is gonna vary, like this is the first thing to know. This, uh, my claim here isn't that ideology doesn't matter at all, is that there's a broad spectrum of belief, adherence, understanding, um, and, and uniformity in, in how people engage with ideology. Um, 
but that when it comes to sort of conflicts, what we need to be understanding is that there's a great deal of, um, of social interaction going on both within militant organizations and between them that in the way that we currently understand ideology has very little to do with ideology, but plays a huge role in how people are socialized and thus how they behave, right? And that a lot of it actually incorporates fun right? That it's fun to go out shopping together so that you all wear clothes that like look the same way, right? That talking about food is, and, and uh, you know, I, I forget where you're from actually, but if I think about the fact that I'm from Philadelphia, talking about like the authentic way to make a cheesesteak is a thing that I share with other people from Philadelphia, right? So there's an element you can, this is about not just um, the idea of, of, um, socialization, but also the important element of like, people are people and they're going to, and they, and they want what they're participating in to be fun. This is how people build a sense of belonging. And that belonging isn't just because of, you know, doing military drills together or attending political education um, or whatever that is, there is mm -hmm. all of this other stuff. It sounds, it sounds a lot like uh, uh, like what Thomas Heghammer and Elizabeth Kendall and scholars like that have been doing with jihadi organizations at the kind of the, the, the lived culture of being a jihadist fighter. Right, or like Oscar Verkeke does it with the MQM in Pakistan as well. One of the points that he makes in his book is like, okay, you can talk about all these different behaviors as having political meaning, but it's also fun to burn effigies for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> But one of the other things that I actually like to bring out with this work is that we're talking about, um, in the case of Palestinians in Lebanon, um, communities that live in an extremely precarious situation in what many would call either um, you know, a, a failed state or close to a failed state at this point. And that knowing who's got your back has a lot of significance in this sort of setting, yeah. because you can't assume that the state has your back. You can't even really assume that an overarching political organization has your back, but your friends who you gossip with and who you cook with and who wear the same things and who tell you what to wear and who warn you about that girl who is trying to steal other people's boyfriends, like that takes on a lot mm. of significance. Or I would say that takes on a particular significance in a setting where people have to protect each other because the assumption is that no one is protecting them. That's really interesting. So I guess the last question is that now that this article is out there in the world, um, what do you think that that should mean for people who study the things that you study? What are the most important takeaways for how people should be researching these types of organizations? So I think one of the things is that, again, it's not that ideology doesn't matter, but that there are complementarities and that often we don't see those complementarities because frankly, it's difficult to get access in order to study the everyday of militant organizations, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, that, but that people see it, I mean, some of the studies that I relied upon for this article, for example, um, Wood and Toppelberg's work on the US military, looking at sexual violence, for example, and informal socialization, but sort of really thinking through um, what are our assumptions about how doctrine and ideology work but then how do people actually live their lives? And I do think that sometimes in political science, there is an unfortunate tendency to strip away the lived experience, but also to assume that someone who claims membership in a particular group is sort of all in, as opposed to being there for all kinds of different reasons. So I guess my second point here would be that 
in order to really understand the kind of politics that are that are playing out inside these organizations, it requires us to humanize the people in them. It doesn't require agreement, um, but or or endorsement for that matter. But looking at people, given the contexts that they're in and the challenges that they face can actually open windows onto entirely sort of new avenues of inquiry that are often foreclosed because it's sort of inconvenient for people to, to like take that deeper look. Well, great, thanks. We've been speaking with Sarah Parkinson of Johns Hopkins University about her new world politics article, Practical Ideology and Militant Organizations. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks so much, Mark. It was a pleasure to be here. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and joining us today on our book segment is Glenn Robinson of the Naval Postgraduate School, author of the brand new book, Global Jihad, A Brief History, which was just published by Stanford University Press. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the book. Uh, what is it? What were you trying to accomplish with it? Well, the main point of the book was to write a uh, short, accessible uh, interpretive history of this phenomenon that we've seen really over the last four decades of global jihad, um, and so that it could be uh, usefully uh, presented and understood by uh, particularly uh, undergraduates uh, uh, in their classes around the country. And so what are the main arguments? Uh, what, what is your unique contribution to understanding the global jihad uh, trend? Well, I do two things in the book, uh, two main arguments. The first is to um, is to tell a story about the global jihad phenomenon and to make an argument that it is best understood as four really distinct waves or iterations of global jihad beginning in the 1980s and continuing through to this day. So basically saying not just that these various groups and movements uh, within under the umbrella of global jihad have things in common, but they have a lot of things that are quite different. Uh, that separate themselves out. And there have been four very distinctive forms of it in the last 40 years. And most of the book is uh, basically focuses on that argument. And then um, at the end of the book, I, I asked the question of, you know, how do we situate global jihad in the larger universe of violent political movements? And that's when I introduced this concept of uh, movements of rage and make an argument that global jihad is uh, best understood as a variant form uh, of a movement of rage, which then can lead to, I think, very interesting comparisons, not only with other religious type political movements, but secular ones as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, why don't we start by talking about the waves? And I think it's important that um, you don't necessarily see this as like sequential or chronological. Um, some of the waves overlap um, rather than, uh, you know, kind of one replacing the next. Correct. That's right. So the first one then, uh, we'll start us at the beginning then. What was the first wave of global jihadism? Uh, and, and maybe you can explain why the global is so important there. Yeah, so I mean, you see throughout the 20th century the rise of Islamism as a socio-political movement, and then later on as Islamism failed to uh, to really gain much traction. Um, uh, authors begin and ideologues at the beginning of the 1960s start thinking in more analytical terms about the necessity of jihad. So there, there's this long history of, of sort of ideas being debated in the role of violence in pushing this phenomenon. 
What you see in the 1980s, and it comes very much out of the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, is now the conceptualization of a, a systemic problem or problems at the global level that must be addressed at the global level, both as the, the focus of ideology and the focus of violent action is now global. So this is when jihad goes global as uh, uh, people have used that phrase. Um, and again, it's this first wave is really the brainchild of a Palestinian Jordanian by the name of uh, Abdullah Yusuf Azam. Um, and the idea focuses on the necessity to liberate territory. Uh, he basically looked at Afghanistan and the, the model that he had helped create for Afghanistan, because he was the great popularizer. Azam was a great popularizer of the Afghan Jihad, uh, particularly in the Arab world, but around the world. I mean, even coming to the US on a few occasions to raise money and to uh, raise awareness. And he said, look at this model of, and it's a bit of an idealized model here, of foreign uh, fighters, you know, pious Muslim warriors coming to Afghanistan to help the local Muslim Afghan community uh, to liberate their territory from a foreign occupation. That model can be used around the world. And he, uh, late in life, he started to take this, this concept that a lot of jihadis use, um, the al-Qaeda al-Sulba, the sort of solid base or solid foundation, which ideologues up to that point had, had always um, defined in territorial terms. In other words, we, we, we win back Afghanistan and we create an Islamic state and from there we can you know, go forth and conquer. He started thinking about it as a, um, much like a, the communist international where <clears throat> you have a group of pious, well-trained warriors that can go around the world assisting um, Muslim communities who are under foreign non-Muslim domination. Uh, so he looked at, you know, there were a dozen other cases at least that, that he could point to that, um, that the same model uh, could be used to liberate territory in Central Asia, in Kashmir, uh, in Mindanao, in the Philippines, and most importantly for him, uh, in Palestine itself. So yeah, that's, a, that's that a point that, that is often misunderstood. Uh, after 9-11, there was this idea that it had nothing to do with Palestine. And I think you do a nice job in the book of showing how central that actually was to the thinking. Absolutely. And you, you saw this with bin Laden in the, in the second wave in particular, where the over the course of really two years, he learned how to take the issue of Palestine as sort of one of a number of issues and really focus attention for a broader Muslim community uh, and centralize the issue of Palestine. So it's, it's always been very important um, uh, to these folks. Now, let's talk for a minute about this concept of the global though, because one of the debates that you track through these early chapters is the debate between uh, this focus on um, kind of local insurgencies um, versus this global idea that Azam had, and you point to, to Ayman Zawahiri and the uh, Islamic Jihad movement uh, as one as one of the key kind of axes of that debate. But it was a bigger debate than that. Absolutely. So, um, and this is part of the reason why uh, Bin Laden was criticized amongst a lot of jihadis for taking essentially local issues and globalizing them unnecessarily. So even within the jihadi community, there is a, and there has been for years, a strategic debate about this issue of globalization. Uh, and it's not something you saw earlier when, you know, Saeed Qutb was writing in the 1960s. 
um, he wasn't talking about a global jihad. It was very much a local set of issues. Uh, Muhammad Abdullah Abdul Salam Faraj, who you know came up with this notion of far enemy, near enemy, did so to warn against fighting a far enemy and to right. focus instead on the near enemy. So there has been this debate within the within the jihadi community for a long time, but clearly there are some people that concluded, beginning with Azam, that the problems were were systemic at the the problems that they were uh, focusing on were uh, systemic at the global level. So there had to be a global form of response. Now you also link that debate to the debate over the use of takfir, uh, excommunication, um, and and as a as a legitimation for targeting these uh, so-called apostate regimes. Yeah, and this is again another uh, another significant debate uh, within the uh, within the jihadi community is the use of of takfir. And Abdullah Azam, for example, our sort of first ideologue of global jihad was opposed to the use of, of the sort of uh, willy-nilly wholesale use of takfir. I mean, as, as you know, Mark, there is an old concept of takfir is basically as old as Islam, but it it's, it's at an individual level, right? When you're accusing an individual, not a regime or a society right. of apostasy, and there are procedures, um, bringing of evidence and all of that. So there is this process of takfir. Uh, that is quite old. What you see in jihadis, both incidentally at the local and in some cases at the global level, um, is the is a debate over the appropriateness of using takfir. Some people, like Ayman Zawahiri, you meant, just mentioned, uh, current head of Al Qaeda, uh, has long been a big believer in the use of takfir as again a legitimizing uh, tool. Others, uh, Abdullah Azam, um, uh, uh, Asuri, for example, uh, as well, who is sort of the ideologue of the fourth wave, uh, Abu Masab Asuri, uh, were both, frankly, opposed to this kind of wholesale use of takfir and um, were arguing against its, uh, its use the way a lot of jihadis wanted to use it. It's divisive. It creates internal conflict. Yeah, it's, it's basically, it, it pits Muslim on Muslim, weakens the Muslim world, creates a sort of a new fitna. Um, and uh, it, is, it is bad for Muslims at the end of the day, um, Azam, Saudi, and others have argued. But again, there has been pushback by Ahmed Zawahiri and others. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that the, um, the Takfiris has, have generally won that argument, at least up to this point. Well, now, by the way, that's a good uh, segue then into uh, the second wave, uh, the Osama bin Laden wave, um, which you see is quite distinctive from the first wave. So walk us through exactly what was distinctive about uh, bin Laden's uh, approach to the global jihad and why it merits a wave of its own. So, and, and again, uh, bin Laden and, I, uh, and um, um, uh, Azam knew each other, had known each other for um, uh, really throughout the 1980s. Uh, so they were not, you know, their ideas were known to each other. But I make it, I, I say, look, this is a distinctive form. First of all, in the early 1990s, there really wasn't much of a global jihad to speak of. There was, there was no sort of singular movement or group out there that was carrying the banner of global jihad. There were a ton of local jihads, um, um, you know, throughout the Muslim world. Uh, but, but nothing to compare to uh, what we think about as global jihad today. Now, Bin Laden, um, by the mid-90s, uh, he had come to adopt a global form of jihad, but a very different one from Azam, right? So as we said, the primary goal of that first 
iteration or first wave of global jihad was the liberation of Muslim territory. So it was, it was a land-focused uh, jihad uh, around the world. For bin Laden, um, the uh, issue was the defeat of various jihad movements in the, uh, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, and the growing American military footprint uh, in the Middle East as well, um, that uh, assisted apostate regimes, in his view, st to stay in power. Uh, so he came to the conclusion that this focus on overthrowing the local regime was not going to succeed until you uh, push the Americans out of the equation. So if you could do direct attacks on American targets, he concluded that the Americans would essentially leave the Middle East. Um, and in that way, these apostate regimes would, in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and elsewhere would be much more vulnerable to overthrow and uh, not have the United States there in his mind uh, to save them at the end of the day. So again, driving out the Americans in order to weaken apostate regimes in the Muslim world as opposed to the liberation of lands uh, 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 throughout the world. Very different uh, conceptualization of global jihad. Now again, I appreciated the, the, the way that when you were examining uh, bin Laden's uh, thinking and the evolution of an articulation of his, uh, of his position, the centrality of things like the, the sanctions on Iraq as well as Palestine, which again were largely whitewashed out of, I think, a lot of the public debate about uh, around the time of 9-11, but as you point out, are very, very clear in his manifestos. Yeah, this was, and uh, you know, going back to some of your earlier work, Mark, this was something that was um, really front and center in the 1990s um, in the Arab world, the Arab press, Al Jazeera and elsewhere, uh, was the devastating impact of these sanctions on Iraq that followed the first Gulf War. They made some news. I mean, there was the talk about targeted sanctions and this sort of thing. They made some news in the U.S., but they were really a back burner issue. And so I think Americans were, were caught by surprise about how central that issue was in um, sort of as evidence for bin Laden in his uh, justification for uh, going after the Americans. So you talked about the two big fatwa or the one fatwa and the one big statement that he puts out. Each of them play a different role, it seems, in his articulation of, of the global jihad. Yeah, so this is very interesting. And, and, and the difference between the 1996 um, statement and then the 1998 uh, so-called fatwa to uh, to kill Americans is is I mean it's, there's a significant evolution just in that two-year period. The 1996, what's usually referred to as the Declaration of War, it's not a fatwa. It was never uh, put as a fatwa. Was actually an oral speech that uh, Bin Laden gave up in the Hindu Kush that then was later um, transliterated and uh, uh, by different people and then translated again by different people. So there are different versions since because the original was a speech, um, we don't have uh, the actual written text from Bin Laden. So there are some, uh, some variations in this, but this was um, basically a statement, long and rambling statement by Bin Laden where he is evolving slowly from a, a, a near enemy thinker, right? He, in the 1980s, he was kind of a straight old fashioned jihadi in many ways. 
in the uh, mid 90s, he um, uh, early to mid 90s, he is focusing on the Saudi regime um, and what they're doing and ultimately having a major break with the Saudi regime. By the 1996 declaration, he is now still focused on the Saudi regime and sort of inside baseball, what was going on in Saudi Arabia, but he's also now bringing in the Americans. Uh, and it's essentially a declaration of war on both of them, you know, a pox on both your houses. Um, and it's not particularly clear-eyed um, strategic thinking in my, my judgment. The 1998 so-called fatwa um, was much shorter by comparison, and it was um, um, a clear declaration of war on the United States to, and, and the finding in the fatwa was, was, and it was a, you know, individual obligatory uh, to kill Americans and their allies anywhere in the world. Um, civilian, military, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, so this was his first clear far enemy statement that the, the major problem is the Americans uh, and their allies to some degree and the apostate regimes in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and elsewhere, um, they were a symptom of this larger problem. So he had to address the larger problem. And it's, if I could just add one thing to that, it's interesting because he takes this concept, this near enemy, far enemy concept that Muhammad Abdul Salam Faraj had put together. The Faraj, of, as you know, was the chief ideologue and leader of the group that killed uh, Sadat, in, Anwar Sadat in 1981. And as I said before, Farage was saying, look at the, don't go after the far enemy because that's a waste of time and resources. Focus your attention on the near enemy, the, 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 the local regime. And for Farage, the far enemy was Israel, it wasn't the United States. Um, bin Laden takes this concept and flips it on its head and says, going after the near enemy won't do us any good as long as the far enemy is there to catch, catch them before they fall. Um, so we've got to drive out the far enemy, which now is no longer Israel, but is the United States. Uh, we've got to drive them out. And, and, and once that happens, then these near enemy regimes can be, uh, uh, can be more easily overthrown. Uh, your, your verdict on the bin Laden wave is, uh, is pretty, uh, <laughs> not very impressive in your eyes. It was, you know, by comparison to, for example, the third wave, the ISIS state building wave, um, the Al-Qaeda way was, was, was pretty short. I mean, really from 1998 with the East Embassy bombings uh, through 9-11, uh, three years later. Um, and that was the apex, you know, sort of the high, the high watermark for Al-Qaeda. Um, within a couple of years, many of its, uh, you know, not the top two leaders, but basically everybody underneath them had been killed or captured or, you know, was on the run and, 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 and not useful. Um, so it had, it was, it was what some people would call Al-Qaeda central, was essentially defeated um, by, you know, 2003 or so. Now in the book, I say we can put the end date on that second wave, the Al-Qaeda uh, wave when uh, bin Laden was killed in 2011 in Abbottabad, Pakistan by Navy SEALs. Um, but it had been just a kind of a sort of a hollow um, uh, corpse, uh, you know, up to that, it, it really uh, had not been a powerful actor in the global scene, uh, really, since about 2003. Well, let's go to the third wave then, Iraq, Syria, ISIS, um, which is, uh, I, I think you correctly identify, is a very, very different beast. 
It is. And this is, you know, the general goal here, right? The first wave was liberation of land. The second wave was to drive the Americans out to make a local apostate regimes more vulnerable. This third wave was uh, the state building wave. Um, and this is what made ISIS so distinctive, um, was to build the state, declare the caliphate. And the point of the state was not to create, you know, another Westphalian state uh, as we have around the world, um, but a uh, puritanical Islamic state where apostasy itself, sinful behavior itself could be eliminated uh, in their mind. So to um, uh, you recall the, uh, the old distinction of, you know, city of man, city of God, um, a similar kind of idea where you create a city of man whose job it is, is to make piety possible, sort of perfect piety possible. No, uh, no temptations, no apostasy, uh, and therefore Muslims can lead a, a sort of a perfect uh, religious life uh, in, uh, in their mind. So it was very much uh, focused on, again, state building in the heart of uh, the Middle East and creating a kind of new form of a state um, that is uh, very much uh, anti, or what I put in the book, pre-Westphalian version uh, of a state. So there's a number of things that are characteristic about this. And the two that I wanted to kind of draw you out on, one is the way you talk about uh, their strategic use of violence. And the other is your um, rather, um, again, being relatively unimpressed by uh, their theology. Unimpressed by their theology, but impressed by their uh, their their ability to mobilize, right? The, exactly, the, exactly. This third wave is by far the most successful in terms of, of recruitment, mobilization, and impact uh, on on the world. Um, so, uh, in terms of the strategic use of violence, um, in the two thousand and three to two thousand and five period, so right on the heels of the American invasion of Iraq. Um, was a period of just tremendous uh, tumult, uh, intellectual tumult in the jihadi world. And this is this two year period when a lot of the most uh, radical tracks uh, were, uh, were written uh, by various jihadis. Um, and the one that I focus on in, in the book, again, in part because it has been translated, so therefore accessible uh, to, um, to undergraduates and even graduates who don't read Arabic that uh, they can access it, um, is this concept of uh, idrata tawahush, uh, idrata tawahush, the management or administration of savagery. Um, and uh, that was written in 2004 by Abu Bakr al-Naji, which is a pseudonym for an Egyptian uh, jihadi. And he basically lays out the case for the use of extreme kind of over-the-top violence, performative violence to some degree. Uh, and it does really two things. One, it loosens control over territory by the existing state. It takes land that is controlled by the state that they're opposed to um, and puts it into a gray area. Uh, so it makes it possible for jihadis through their use of this just again, grotesque violence um, to um, loosen up the ties and maybe even uh, have the possibility of taking over land. This is exactly what happened in Mosul uh, when, uh, when ISIS took over Mosul in June of 2014. They had so terrorized uh, Iraqi um, security military forces uh, through their violence that as soon as they showed up 
and did a couple of acts of the same kind of uh, really sort of over the top performative violence, the Iraqi forces just left, right? So it, it, it did its job in terms of loosening the state's hold on a particular territory. And it can be strategically used uh, to help maintain power, right? You don't have to win everybody's hearts and minds. Uh, you know, this is a lesson from Stalin and, and, and others. If you terrorize society enough, people will follow uh, for their own self-interest. And then on the, your verdict then on the overall trajectory of this third wave, um, where do you see that? How do you see this standing now? So the... The ideology of the third wave, you know, you said I, I wasn't very impressed by it. And that's, that's true. And this is one of those interesting uh, uh, things that you see with, with ISIS um, ideologues. And there are a whole bunch of them. Not, you can't just point to one person here, one or two people. Um, is the use of storytelling as opposed to theology. Right. ISIS really showed no interest in trying to convince the ulama, the, you know, the sort of top clerics from around the world in the legitimacy of their argument uh, and to win them over that their argument uh, you know, should win the day, which is why no top cleric anywhere in the Muslim world recognized the caliphate or the new caliph. Um, so it just they basically didn't even bother trying to win the theological argument. Instead, they would focus on sort of storytelling from, uh, from Muslim history, picking, you know, cherry picking the stories that they thought would be most useful. That's how they tended to indoctrinate their recruits, again, not through theology, but through storytelling. Um, and it was pretty, it was pretty effective. And so, um, the, where does it stand today? I mean, ISIS, and the state building project was, I think, by far the most successful of these waves of global jihad. Um, it attracted tens of thousands of fighters to its cause. It is still today a significant um, uh, jihadi group that uh, uh, is continuing to commit acts of violence, uh, often acts of terrorism. Um, but when in 2017, the territorial state was defeated, and again, that was the thing that separated ISIS out from all the other jihadi groups was the focus on state building and the successful focus, at least for a while, on state building. Um, uh, once, once that territorial state disappeared, the thing that set ISIS apart also disappeared, which is why I, I in my sort of cataloging of these waves, I put the, um, the third wave uh, essentially ended in 2017 when ISIS lost its territorial state. Again, it doesn't mean ISIS has disappeared or its ideology is, um, is you know, no longer is around. It's, you know, these are still dangerous folks, um, but it's a, um, uh, the, the thing that set it apart that made it distinctive is no longer uh, relevant. Which brings us finally to the fourth wave, uh, the, uh, uh, the kind of uh, uh, personal uh, type of uh, jihadist movement, which you see as actually more enduring uh, than the others. Yeah, and this is, it's a, again been very, uh, it's, a, it's the wave that we're currently in, this fourth wave, and I think we'll be in for a long time. It's not a particularly significant strategic threat, um, but uh, it is a durable uh, threat. And this is, it basically begins with um, this Syrian ideologue and sort of longtime participant in jihadi movements, uh, Abu Masab al-Suri. 
And um, prior to his capture in 2005, but after the fall of the Taliban state in Afghanistan, he wrote this 1600 page manuscript that, that begins to lay out this fourth wave. And sort of the, the key phrase that he uses that I uh, put in the book and then expand on um, is Nizam la Tanzim, Nizam la Tanzim, system, not organization. Because he looks around at all these various jihadi groups um, that were you know, in the sh operating in the shadows on the margins, um, would kill people from time to time, but really did uh, were very, very weak. And it was fairly easy for state security, military forces to, to roll them up. So he wanted to think about a system um, that could survive uh, this kind of periodic rolling up of various uh, jihad groups uh, that he saw. And this is what's really interesting in my mind about this fourth wave. It, this is, and this is, gets into the comparative framework. This is um, global jihad's contribution to this um, whole uh, issue of stochastic violence um, that I use in the book, stochastic violence. This is the inspired violence. It's inspired by a group, an ideology, a person, but without any kind of logistical connection uh, between that group and uh, an individual that carries out uh, that violence. So it's inspired, but not directed or paid for or logistically uh, connected uh, in, in any way. This is sort of the modern form of terrorism, uh, right, that we're seeing around the world. Uh, white nationalists use this, uh, this form of terror uh, all the time. What happened in Nashville may, and I want to underline may, um, be a, an example of that uh, as well. It, it, it appears that the, uh, the bomber may have been inspired by the QAnon movement, uh, given the choice of, of targets. Um, and if there was no interaction between him and QAnon leaders, to this degree that there are, then that would be another example of stochastic uh, terror. Suri uh, termed this uh, jihad fardi, uh, personal jihad. So it's up to individuals and small groups to be inspired um, and utilize um, uh, that inspiration to commit acts of violence. But the use of the internet, the use of the media to network with each other, what I refer to in the book as the creation of a wiki narrative. So not one or two ideologues, but a community of ideologues uh, that can um, you know, morph the ideology as new attacks arise and try and create a bigger bang for the buck ideologically than what uh, you know, a, a killing of a couple of people or a dozen people uh, could actually do. So it's a very interesting form that, of violence that we see, not just global jihadis, but other uh, groups around the world, especially the white nationalists uh, utilize today. Well, great. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Glenn Robinson at the Naval Postgraduate School about his wonderfully readable uh, overview of the jihadist movement, uh, Global Jihad, A Brief History, just published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Thank you.